You're listening to episode 115 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? I'd love to kick off today's episode by thanking our listeners for taking the time to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and for also leaving a rating and a review. Blondie3149620 recently rated our show five stars and left an awesome review titling it Approach the Page with Confidence. She continued to write, 88 Cups of Tea inspires, motivates, and equips me to approach the page with confidence, and that is such a gift as a writer who has to push against artistic resistance and fear every day in order to get the words out of my brain and onto the page. Thank you, Yin. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to leave such an uplifting review. You are so awesome. Now, before we introduce today's guest, come join us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Our private Facebook community is incredible. The storytellers in our group are so loving and supportive of each other, and we'd love to welcome you into our conversations that happen every day. I can't wait to meet you over at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Now on to today's guest, we have Carmen Maria Machado, a fiction writer, critic, and essayist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, NPR, and so much more. Carmen's debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Kirkus Prize, the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, and the winner of the Bard Fiction Prize. NPR describes her body and other parties as an abrupt, original, and wild collection of stories full of outlandish myths that somehow catch at familiar, unspoken truths about being women in the world that more straightforward or realist writing wouldn't. In this episode, we kick it off by discussing Carmen's earliest memories of a story she wrote as a kid called The Biggest Turkey Can't Find the Farm, and you'll understand why it's become her famous family story shared at gatherings. My stomach hurts so much from laughing when she was sharing that story. We then discuss Carmen's thoughts about MFA programs and if she thinks they're necessary for a successful or a stable writing career. We talk about maximizing a productive writing schedule by figuring out a system that works for you, how Carmen organizes her thoughts during her writing process, and why it's so important to not get fixated on being published to the point where you lose yourself and are unable to provide your best work possible. Later, we touch on abuse and same-sex relationships and how that ties in with her memoir, House in Indiana, releasing in 2019. We also talk about how to recognize the warning signs of an abusive relationship. We then wrap up our conversation by talking more about her body and other parties and how her editor played a crucial role in the process. She also shares how to recognize signs of a good editor, why you should only work with the right editor and agent and to never settle, and how to make yourself visible as a short story writer. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have Carmen with us on the show. I've been super excited about her book. I'm thrilled to finally chat with her today. Carmen, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am so good. I am so pumped to have you on the show. Your stories are so powerful. It's been a while where I'm just so engrossed in something. It was very, very refreshing. Thank you. You write so 
beautifully. And the discussions that you're able to spark with your writing is also another reason why I'm so into what you've created. It's something that I've talked about with my girlfriend. My girlfriend, she loves reading as well. She and I don't normally discuss books, but it's something that I was in her face about. Like, how do you feel about that part? (laughs) Well, why don't you think this? I don't understand why I see it, but you don't. I attacked her afterwards, but it's just (laughs) wonderful to have something where you can have a very intimate and meaningful conversation afterwards and just reflections as well. And my girlfriend did really love your work. She was very, very blown away by it. I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to stop fangirling (laughs) and I'm going to turn the spotlight to you. Carmen, before we jump in, I would love to kick off and just so that we can learn more about you as a writer, as a person, how did you first fall in love with writing? I was really lucky when I was a kid, everybody read to me. My parents are not big readers, but made a point of reading to me. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, like people were just always getting me books and reading me stories. And so I loved reading and I devoured books really intensely. And then at some point I was like, I want to write my own. So, you know, when I was really little, I was making little books out of paper and like stapling them together and writing these like really weird, dark (laughs) stories. I feel always sort of had that instinct. I mean, I was the library all the time. I just read a ton. So I feel like I've always been on the path to being a writer, even though I've had a few detours. In retrospect, it's like, oh, this is literally what I was meant to do (laughs) since birth. When you said you were writing dark stories, was it from your own experiences or was it from things that you were reading? I think it was mostly things I was reading. And if you look back, I read a lot of Roald Dahl and Shel Silverstein and those were writers who wrote for children, but wrote these really dark, intense stories that had a lot of death and weirdness in them. I had a relatively normal childhood, and so it wasn't as if I was myself a troubled orphan. It wasn't like I was living... sort of scenarios that I was writing about, but I definitely drew a lot from the books that I really enjoyed. I was like, oh my gosh, what was going on in your past? Tell me about it. Oh, nothing. It's funny. There's this story my mom tells about how I had this great aunt who's from the South and she talked to me when I was eight or something. And then she went to my mother and she said, she writes as if she has suffered. <laughs> and my mom was like, no, she hasn't suffered. Like, my God. <laughs> I feel like I'm like, your kid and I really love dark stuff, like, even from the beginning. Your parents are probably like, now people think we're abusing the hell out of our daughter. Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> my dad's favorite joke is, we should have been meaner to you. And I'm like, yeah, my work would have been At least darker. they could have gotten credit. Now it's like they have no credit at all. <laughs> Damn it. We were too good to her. I do believe in past lives because I was raised as a Buddhist. And I'm thinking maybe something in the past life. Who knows? Oh, maybe, yeah. I'm always so interested, especially when you're younger and you're writing dark material. And that comes off way more mature than what usually kids write about. I was like thinking, what did I write? I think I wrote about unicorns and butterflies. Do you remember if there was a dark story that you wrote? And do you remember what it was about? I'm just so curious how dark we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So the really famous one in my family is I wrote a little book called The Biggest Turkey Can't Find the Farm. The plot of the book was that a turkey is sort of wandering around trying to find his home. So there's like a wanted poster with like his face on. He's wandering around and he it actually has a pretty like traditional sort of picture book structure where it's, he's, I need to get home. Is my home here? And he goes to a hotel and then you see it's a hotel and then it's like, no, it's not here. And then he's running away and like a maitre d' is like chasing him or like a concierge. <laughs> and then he's like, is it here? And it's like some other place that's not his home. And then he's like, no, it's not here. And then he's like, is it here? And he goes to a zoo and then he is like, no, it's not here. And then he runs away and with a lion is chasing him. And then he says, is it here? And he's at the farm. 
And he's like, yes, yes, it's here. And then the last page was a roasted turkey on a plate. And it said, I wish I could that from here. And that was like the end of the book. <laughs> My parents were like, uh, <laughs> okay. That's yeah. so genius. You know what? You need to pull that out of your files and publish it as a really awesome coffee table book for adults. I know. It's so weird. I, that's sort of ironic reversal at the end. That is clearly something I had read. Like, I don't think I came up with that structure. Like, I was like, oh, okay, I've read a bunch of books like this. And somehow the humor of a turkey who then gets what he wants, but then is punished for it by being eaten. Is like, just, I don't know. I was like, oh, that's really funny. I think that's hilarious. I wish I met you as a kid and we would have hung out and been best friends. <laughs> It just shows, too, like how intelligent you were to absorb that kind of structure and apply your own humor to it. I think that's brilliant. If I have kids one day, I hope they're like you. That is such a great family story to tell. Thank you for sharing about the turkey. I'm also now curious when you started to get super into craft for writing, because clearly your writing is very powerful. I don't want to give it away, but there's something about a zit, let's just say. And I was like, oh my lordy lord. Other descriptions were incredibly beautiful. I don't think I've highlighted so much of a book since college when I had to read this book called Written on Her Body by Jeanette Winterson. Oh, Jeanette Winterson? Yes. Yeah. And it's so fucking good. That was when I was like, oh, this is how books can be written. Oh, I get it. Ever since that book... I have not highlighted something that much. I will stop fangirling, but going on though, like with schooling, how do you go about realizing, all right, I'm super serious about writing. When was that moment? Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of steps to it. When I was in high school, I definitely wrote a lot. And then I got to college and I actually ended up majoring in photography. So I was taking one writing class every semester, but mostly I was just doing photography and like other things. When I graduated from college, you know, I graduated when the recession started. So I was like broke as hell, couldn't find a job, was just kind of drifting around. I moved to California and I was kind of miserable and took me a job I didn't like and I was really exhausted and you know it was expensive to live there and I was like I really want to get out of California I don't like it here I miss weather and I miss not spending all of my money on rent but I was really struggling to figure out how to do it because I didn't know how I could quit my job I was just trying to figure out what to do finally I was like I was going to apply to graduate programs I'm going to apply to MFA programs and see what happens and then I got into a couple and I decided to go to Iowa the nice thing about that was like it was a funded program so I could just go and recalibrate and really focus on writing because I've been writing the whole time but it was the first time where I was this is a thing I'm going to do in a concentrated way for several years and then I did it and it made like I was basically there just like reading a ton and writing a ton and learning what my voice was what kind of stories I wanted to tell etc etc it was really that moment in grad school and I've been writing professionally ever since then congratulations to you that's phenomenal MFAs is it necessary to have a successful or a more quote-unquote stable writing career. What are your thoughts about that? Very few writers actually support themselves with their writing by by itself. Stephen King, certain writers with like more commercial appeal can do that, but there are a lot of writers who have won like major awards who I know who still have to teach to support themselves. It's really hard to sort of do that just by itself. For me, I was really glad to get an MFA. I mean, you don't need one per se, unless you really want to teach. Like I love teaching, and so you kind of need that if you want to teach at the college level. If you want to teach creative writing, you need like a terminal degree. For me, the MFA was valuable, not because of the degree itself, but because I was able to, I didn't pay tuition. I was getting a fellowship. So I was able to spend some time focused 
when I didn't have to worry about making money. I wasn't rich, but I was living comfortably yes. in a small town and I was able to take the time. That's like the final bubble. After I graduated, I moved to Philadelphia and my wife got a job and I was struggling to find work and I was adjuncting and working retail. I suddenly had to kind of readjust my writing life to be like, oh, I have to make money. I have to have health insurance and all these things because no, I'm not getting that from the school anymore. That was a weird transition. I think that if you're really serious about your art, I think you have to figure out how to assemble your life in a way that keeps you, you know, like you have what you need while also being able to make your work. For me, I teach and I don't write while I'm teaching because it's like the same energy. I don't have the mental space. During the school year, I don't write. But then I either take a semester off or I'll go in the summer and then I will write a ton. That's my system that I have for myself. And barring any like sudden windfalls, winning the lottery, that's probably how it's going to be forever. That's my system. So other people, like my wife works at nine to five and she gets every morning and she writes. And that's like a really different process. The sort of diligent like drip sort of system, which is a different, not what I do, but that's what sort of for her like makes the most sense for her work so i feel it took me a while to figure that out because being in an mfa is so unlike the real world because it's not you are in the real world that's like you know the real world still is happening outside of you and things still happen there's a moment where you don't have to think about health insurance or income or things like that that was really valuable to me and gave me some space to just experiment and figure out what i wanted my work to really look like so i probably could have gotten to where i wanted to go without the mfa but it would have taken a lot longer i'm just glad that i did it. That's awesome to hear. I would love for the community to know and also myself, what are you really excited about right now? Right now I'm in this very weird place because everything's been going super well for my book. I've been incredibly happy. It's all very exciting. So right now I'm actually pretty exhausted because I've been touring for months. I can imagine. I, I feel like I don't of anything. Whenever I lay down, I just pass out unconscious and then this morning and I'm like, oh God, <laughs> more things to do today. <laughs> That's just like pretty typical. I think when you're at this point, I mean, I'm almost done with my tour. It's so close. So yeah, I'm working on a new book. That's pretty exciting. Not really doing it. I've been touring. Next year, I'm going to be doing a lot of residencies. So I'm really looking forward to spending that time. I think I've been thinking about that. Various essays and things that I'm working on. I'm just plugging along. I have a lot of projects kind of like in the works, but it's just so hard for me to work right now. So, so just taking notes for myself and thinking about it. Are you able to share a little bit about what you're currently working on, the new project? Yeah, it's still in the works. I'm working on a memoir, but I've sold it already to Grey Wolf. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so it's a memoir. It's about abuse and same-sex relationships. So it's like pretty intense. It is a lot of work. I'm having a lot of feelings about it, but I'm excited for it to be out. And I think uh, Grey Wolf's going to do a really good job because it does a beautiful job with this book. So I'm really, really excited. Are you able to share what that inspiration was? When you mentioned that, that's something that's very, very specific that I don't actually really come across that often. I myself am a survivor of a domestic abuse situation that was with a female partner. And I was looking for books about this topic and couldn't find any. And I always tell my students, like, you have to write the work that you want to see in the world. And I was like, wow, I could have used this book and I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. Maybe I should write it myself. So yeah, so it's from a personal experience. I mean, there's a lot of like sort of experimental elements. Like it's sort of a weird project. I'm just excited for it to be in the world. It's nerve wracking. It's weird because I feel, you know, my collection is so personal and so so intense and so visceral, but it doesn't even have this sort of veil of fiction on it. So it makes it even more intense and sort of in harder. Has it been a little bit healing for you as well? I can only assume it's very scary because you're exposing yourself so much. I don't know if 
healing is the word that I would use. I'm one of those people who work best when I organize my thoughts on the page better than I do in my own mind. For example, if I'm really struggling to figure something out, I'll write a letter and then I can organize my thoughts on the page and that helps me. I'm just that kind of thinker. And so in a way, this book has given me space to sort through those feelings. It's very emotional. It's, it's difficult. It's not easy, but it's helpful. Yeah, it's helpful for me to organize my thoughts, I guess is, is how I put it. Gotcha. Carmen, this may be a little bit personal, but this podcast gets pretty personal a lot of times. This community is really intimate with each other. They're super supportive of each other. If there's any, just from your own experiences, if you know that there's a listener out there that may be going through something similar that you were able to get out of, is there anything you can share with them, whether it's resources to help them realize it and get out of it, or anything that you can share from your heart that has helped you? Oh, that's a really good question. There are warning signs to look out for in those scenarios. I think if you're in a situation where you're with somebody who makes you feel bad and the majority of the time you spend together is fraught in some way or they threaten you and this is all things that like obviously people are like oh it could be relationships like someone hits you but it's way more complicated than that if somebody cuts you off from your support network like if they're constantly trying to convince you not to talk to your friends or to tell your friends about your relationship that is like a symptom of an abusive relationship if you feel they're sort of constantly undermining your perception of things it didn't happen that way it happened this way and that happens in general. Sometimes people discuss perception, but if you're constantly, like, I feel like I'm not sane anymore because like everything that I perceive, she tells me or he tells me is like different than how I perceive it. That's a warning sign. If someone physically intimidates you, even if they don't actually hit you, but if they threaten to hit you or they indicate that there's physical consequences to something that is abusive. If somebody tells you that you're a bad person all the time and makes you feel like garbage constantly, that's abuse. I mean, I could go on. But I think, you know, for me, what was really interesting is when things got really bad, I was lucky in that I had some friends say to me, like, you know, we're really worried about what's kind of going on. And I was very much in denial. And I was like, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. But later that kind of gave me the space to say, like, actually, yes, help me, please help me. Help me. This is bad. Like when I sort of had like a moment of clarity, I think just it's sort of being aware of the signs and also knowing that like if this happens, if you're in an abusive relationship, that is failing. And the hardest part is in retrospect, you're like, I feel so stupid. I feel so guilty. Why did I stay in that? It was such a bad situation. But when you're in it, it's like really hard to have perspective about what's around you. If you're on the street, it looks one way, but then if you get on a helicopter and you fly above a city, suddenly you can sort of see the whole thing and you're like, oh, like now I understand like sort of where I was. And it's like the same thing. It's like sometimes you need a little bit of distance. You need like that space. And people who regularly abuse their partners, they get good at it. When you're in that situation, you're up against somebody who's like really, really good at what they do. And that actually is really difficult to extract yourself from. So trying not to feel guilty or mad at yourself. These are all feelings that I've had myself. So I'm speaking from very intense experience. And also if you are specifically like in a gay relationship, you're queer, you're one with a woman, you're with a man, knowing that it is possible for like women to abuse other women and for men to abuse other men because you're in a queer relationship does not mean that you're suddenly immune from that because I feel like the narratives that we have are very women are the victims and men are the abusers and that's it yes. and it's like no, no 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 it's actually like way more complicated than that anybody can be an abuser and anyone can be a victim of abuse that's what I'm trying to write about because I feel like there are a lot of narratives in queer communities that like, don't allow for that thank you so much for that you brought up a really good point I feel a lot of times I'm guilty of it too where I would 
crack jokes. I definitely own up to this where I hear whether it's people complaining about their boyfriends. And then, and even though like at the time it's like lighthearted, now this conversation was brought up. I'm like, oh, I can see how it's really not helping the stereotype. I would joke around like, see, don't you wish you were in a, a female-female relationship? Because women right. always treat women with respect and women are always loving of each other. I realized I am not helping that narrative because then it's harder for people who are being abused to recognize that. And it's easier for us to recognize abuse as just physical, right? I think that that's something that because you see a physical proof, whether there's marks left or the pain that's inflicted, but then there's those mind games, the manipulative ones that are really, really hard to spot. The second one you listed off when you're sharing, it's true. If people are changing your perception of things and you're recalling something one way but then the significant other might be no that's not how it happened or something like that that's also a form of whether it's brainwashing or a form of emotional mental abuse for sure and it didn't register till you explained it why did i not think of that and it's scary too especially when people are cut off from their own support system this is my first female female relationship with my girlfriend so I didn't know about all those terms that I hear, like, U-Haul lesbians, where they just move in and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah I kind of was one of them. <laughs> I was just so mortified. I was, I was so proud of being this independent woman. And when I was dating men before, I was like, nah, you're not allowed to move in, blah, blah, blah. And now I was just, whoop, oh, hey, I'm living with my girlfriend. I'm like, I think it's scary too, because sometimes when you really enjoy being in a relationship, you got to make sure that you do keep a healthy relationship with those who were there for you before, whether it's your best friends, family, if someone's not really seeing their support group anymore, their loved ones, and it's just all about the significant other, that is also dangerous. And that's a conversation where my girlfriend and I just being very transparent right now that we've had where we're like, you know, we should be there for our friends more. I was always there at a drop of a hat. And I do realize it's been slipping. I've allowed myself to get so caught up because I so enjoy her company, but I see how it can go down a dangerous path if you're not checking yourself in a way. Thank you so much for touching on that. It is something that I think it's helpful just to hear, you know, people that they look up to are sharing something like this, that it's this honest and they're like, oh shit, I better check myself, take a step back and try to see what's happening and self-reflect. Yeah. And the thing you said about being, oh, dating men is so hard that you date women, it's better. I understand that comment only because it's when women date men, that's a very distinctive power dynamic. If you're a woman who dates men, like you're literally just like two opposite sides of the privilege coin. Yes. And so if you're a woman dating woman, that particular axis, axis of power is flattened, right? It's like, we're both women, yes. but like other power dynamics still exist, even if that particular one is different. Yes. Like it is different. Like women are sort of, I think, and that's kind of what my book is about is like, there's in some ways, like abuse is weirdly boring in that it's like the same. Like if, if you talk to people in abusive relationships, usually the narrative they say is really, really similar. Like a lot of abusers are operating from like a really similar place of like a similar kind of handbook or something. But in some ways, like I, I mean, so again, what I'm sort of writing about is like the ways in which like abuse and queer relationships have this particular sort of dimension that is just interesting to me that I just want to write about. So I don't know. It's like I said, it's still a work in progress. This is all very interesting to me. <laughs> this is like what I've been thinking about. 
when you finish your book and you have it out, I need to have you back on again. Just so after you figure it out even more, I would love to discuss even more. I On this specific topic, same-sex abuse, I think this is the first time ever that we've talked about it yeah. in over a hundred episodes. Again, it just shows how there are no stories out there that people can relate to who are in that situation. And it's scary because you don't yeah. know how to identify it. I'm really grateful that you're putting out your story advanced. Thank you for doing that work. I can't even imagine how difficult that is. Thank you again for jumping into that for real. And I know that was not the easiest topic. And also it was super personal. I would love for listeners to hear from your own point of view, what you'd love for them to know about her body and other parties for those who have not picked up a copy just yet before we dive further into her body and other parties. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a short story collection where it varies genres, including horror, fantasy, science fiction, the gothic. I mean, all kinds of different literary sort of conventions and tropes to approach issues of women's bodies, especially queer women. That's sort of the summary. So there's, I retell the, the story of the girl with the green ribbon around her neck, mm-hmm. like that urban legend. Yeah, the I husband stitch. A, the husband stitch. And then I have a story called Especially Heinous where I rewrite episode synopses of Law and Order SVU. And that's sort of about the narratives of like violence against women. And I have a story about gastric bypass surgery and I have a story about sexual assault. And it covers a lot of feminist territory. It's is very focused on the body, maximalist writing style. Let's talk about the writing process for this, because I know because it's multiple short stories. How was that process like? Was it starting a story at a time or was it you had all these ideas that just suddenly came out and you just had to write it down in a notebook and then you're focusing on one at a time? How did that come about? It's what I find so fascinating because it's not one linear storyline, but it's multiple different stories. I wrote the stories over the course of five years. I wrote lots of other stories that that just didn't end up in the book because they didn't really have overlapping themes. I'd write a story that didn't didn't have one of those themes, and I was like, oh, that doesn't really belong in this collection. Like, it belongs somewhere else. So yeah, so I just sort of worked on them one at a time and sold the book, and then did a bunch of edit. One of them was edited pretty intensely like after the book was sold, but most of them had already been published. They'd already gone through some kind of editorial process. It was sort of a slow burn. I mean, I'd come up with ideas and try things out and draft things. And it's weird because I write a lot, but I'm slowing down a lot because I feel like it's getting harder. I used to kind of blaze through stories really quickly, but now I'm writing stories that are longer and more complicated or have more complicated elements. Right now, I'm working on a story for a new book that has like historical elements. I'm doing all this research, which is very new to me and kind of exhausting. I could imagine that. How about the most difficult story from your collection of her body and other parties? was giving you the most resistance? I would say The Resident, which is the (laughs) second to last story. I think it's the second to last story in the collection. It's a novella and it's extremely long and it was one of those stories where when I sold it and my editor and I were working on my edits he was like, I feel like you don't quite know what this story is about yet. And I was like, you are absolutely correct. I do not know what this story is about <laughs> yet. And he was like, I feel like this kind of eight story mashed together. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. I spent a lot of time kind of untangling those threads and trying to figure out what it was about as a story. So it went a series of like intensely radical rewrites. We almost didn't put it in the book because I almost like, couldn't finish it. I mean, I literally spent half a, a six-week residency just trying to fix this stupid story. So it's not stupid. I love it. But it's very frustrating. I was getting very frustrated with it. And then I figured it out and I felt really amazing. I know that you said it super quickly, but I know just figuring it out was like a whole hell of a process. When you were trying to figure it 
out. Can we please unpack that a little bit again, because the community would love to hear this. I know a lot of them have been feeling very stuck in their current work in progress. Whatever you share may help them in their process. Yeah. My editor's really brilliant. Having a good editor is they're worth their weight in gold. Yes. That's what I hear. It's like life-saving. Yeah. People think of editors, oh, they're going to tell me to do to my stories, but like a good editor is somebody who's, okay, here's what I'm seeing, right? Read this story. Here's what I'm perceiving and here's what's not clear to me. And so he did that. He was like, I feel like these elements don't match each other. You sort of mention this incident. Like you keep sort of mentioning this incident in her past, but you never talk about it. And that's very provocative and very interesting. He basically has led me to be like, oh, I actually need to go back and unpack this thing that she keeps referring to, which I just hadn't really thought about. Like I just wanted her to be like, you know, it was sort of a gothic story, had these gothic elements. I wanted her to be like, oh, this thing that happened in my past. But then I was like, oh, actually, that might be really important. Um, and I also realized that it was about, it was about like childhood trauma, which like was not what I, re- I did not realize when I started writing it, that it had that element in it. Um, so it was also just a lot of like, being like, here are all the themes the story is turning around. Here are the ones that don't seem to match or like fit with this story. Um, and then, yeah, at some point I was just like, oh, it's actually about this incident. Once I'd written, there's a scene in it where she like remembers the scene from her childhood right toward the end. And, and like, that is like sort of the, the linchpin or the keystone of the story. And like, when I wrote that, everything else made sense. And I was like, oh, but I, so it, was, it wasn't like I was... It was like probably I'd always been building toward that space, but all of a sudden I, that happens a lot, right? Where it's like your subconscious has been doing a lot of work, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, 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 this is the scene that's missing and then everything else suddenly comes together. Um, so yeah, so honestly, like having a good editor or like a good reader who is somebody who's not going to say, you should do these things, but they're like, here's what I'm reading. Like, here's what I'm seeing. Here are the themes at play. Here's what makes sense to me. Here's what I want more of. Like, that can be really, really helpful. And it's why, like, writing communities are so useful. As long as it's writers that you trust and that you like and you think that they have good taste and that they understand what you're doing, that's why they can be so important. So we have a lot of listeners who are in the process of wanting to learn more about how authors that they look up to have found that perfect editor. If there's anything just from that statement that you can share with them would be very much appreciated. Yeah. When I was out on submission, when my agent had my book, I was like talking to this editor. There was an editor who was like, I like this book, but I have some thoughts about what you could add to it. I did not like what he had to say. It felt wrong. And not because I was being precious, but that sort of like doesn't work with like my vision for this book. I think sometimes people they're so desperate to get published that they're like, I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. But like, it's okay to be like, no, sorry, your vision does not sync with my vision. And it's weird because you're striking a balance. Like you don't want to be so precious. Like I did a lot of edits on my book. There was stuff that needed to be fixed and I knew that. But like when I talked to Ethan, my editor on the phone the first time before he made an offer on my book, he's like, here's what I'm imagining for this book. And it was like, he was inside my head. We were on the same wavelength in terms of my this project. And so that was incredibly helpful to me. And like when I've had really good editors at magazines, it's the same thing where they're like, here's what I'm thinking. And it's like, oh my God, you know exactly the way to fix this. Publication is not the end all be all. It's like making good art. And you can only make good art when you're working with people who respect and understand your vision, but also while you are open to becoming a better artist. And I think taking publication out of the equation for a little bit is like really helpful. Okay. How do I make this the best version of itself? I think people get so stressed out about things like publication that they sort of skip that step. And it's no, 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 no. That's literally the most important step. Making work that you are excited 
I'm proud about. And that's what I would say. Don't be like, oh, I want this to happen, so I'm going to go with a publisher who like, doesn't really get what I'm doing. Because yeah. what's the point of that? Trust your instincts and don't feel it's the end of the world if you disagree with the first one. Keep pushing yeah, yeah. till it's right. I love that because that gives them a sense of confidence to go in and be like, ah, no, not feeling it. Let's yeah. carry on yep. and not, not feel any guilt. Like you said, it's so exciting to have the opportunity to be published where it's like, I feel bad saying no, especially if it's their first thing. Okay, so this is also something that I might be the first question related to something similar in our show. Her Body and Other Parties is a short story collection. When it comes to short story collections, how did you go about finding your literary agent? How was that process like? Is it the same process as when people are looking and querying agents for novel writing? Or is there a different process? So my agent found me because I had published an essay that he read that he really loved. And he Ah. reached out to me and said, what else are you working on? That happens not infrequently. I know a lot of people who have found their agents that way. So if you're the kind of person who you're publishing essays or short stories in in places where agents are reading, that that might happen. If that hadn't happened, I think it would have been really hard for me to find an agent only because short stories are just not an easy sell. Like a lot of agents said to me, I really like your short stories. We'll come back to you and you have a novel and I'll represent you. Ooh, okay. That's hard because it's, that was what I had. It's a short story collection. And I was really lucky that I found an agent who like, he really believed in my work. And even though it wasn't the most on its face, like commercially viable, you know, he wasn't making, make, probably make a lot, of short, a lot of money with my short stories. So there's a real element of, it's a similar to with an editor. You want to find someone that speaks for you. Like you don't need to desperate for an agent. You get an agent and the agent's like, well, here's what I want to do. I want to change everything about this project. And it's like, no, 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 no. You want to find somebody who believes in your work and your your stuff. And like, I've been really lucky that I found an agent who did that. It's hard to find an agent as a short story writer, for sure. I, I cannot sugarcoat that. It's really difficult. I don't really have any advice since I found mine in such a way. But if you are writing short stories or essays, publishing them in certain places, like, will definitely heighten your visibility. And like, I know people who get emails from agents all the time. Thank you so much for that. That was very helpful. If you remember the magazine that your agent found you at? The Rumpus. The Rumpus. Oh, nice. Yes, I've heard of The Rumpus. Carmen, you have been so wonderful. And if you don't mind sharing, how do you feel you've evolved creatively? I know you've been writing for a while. You've been consistent with that. And just from seeing how you first started, I mean, we could go all the way back from the turkey day, or we could start when you first got into studying your MFA. How do you think you've evolved creatively? And how do you feel about that? Are you happy with the direction? Yeah, I feel like my interests have become much more focused. I think part of becoming an artist of any kind and a writer particularly is figuring out what obsessions you have like what interests you as an artist for me it was oh I'm really interested in like women's lives and women's bodies and I have like a certain set of questions that I ask myself a lot and realizing that it's okay to be like writing lots of stories that sort of churn over those same questions that's like part of being a writer also on a sentence level like my prose has really moved along you know, I become more and more obsessed with like what language can do for a story. Mm-hmm. Like I think people are sort of like, oh, like prose, whatever. Like it just has to be a good story. But like prose is this whole other element that can like do so much with, with fiction and nonfiction as well. And so in my collection, I had the story of women that have bodies. And yes, long ago that I actually, even though the plot is the same, I had to rewrite every sentence to right. like get it up to snuff for with the rest of the book because it was so old and I've changed as a, as a prose writer since then and I wanted my sentences to be better so I think not ignoring my sentences and in fact being very focused on how do I make a sentence 
do what I needed to do. And that was really, really important to me as well. Focusing my attention on what I want to be writing about, reading a ton, and letting myself evolve in sorts of experimentation, and like genre experiments, and like form experiments, and just letting myself kind of do whatever. And then, yeah, also really focusing on sentences. Nice. Okay. Are there any books that you would recommend for us to check out, especially when we're talking about prose that you think that really changed your outlook on what prose could be? Oh, totally. So anything by Kelly Link, Karen Russell, some really good collections this year, Sour Heart by Jenny Zhang, White Dialogues by Bennett Sims, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky by mm. Leslie Arma, Beasts and Children by Amy Parker, which actually came out last year, but that's another one that has really gorgeous sentences. It's really brilliant. So those are all short story collections. Oh, Helen Oyeyemi. I love her work and her sentences are gorgeous and her work is so weird and experimental and I just really, really love it. Reading saves me, you know, like when I'm feeling stuck creatively, I read and when I read a good writer. Yes, I love that. Karen, you have been so awesome. One final question. If there's any small manageable steps you'd advise them to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? Ooh, yeah. And I know I just said it, but like, reading at least reading a book a week being like this week i'm gonna try i'm gonna read this thing i think setting prompts for yourself so if you're not in any particular projects like letting yourself like saying this week like today i'm going to i'm gonna write a myth about an origin myth about myself or like today i'm going to make a list of all the things that scare me today i'm gonna make a list of all my narrative obsessions and just letting yourself generating material as as possible when i teach i make my students do a lot of exercises and just helps them have a pool from which to draw when they're working on their projects and also keeping your eyes peeled and sort of observationally speaking about what is around me how might the things around me for example you might observe there's a statue near i don't know my subway stop and it looks like this and then you might say like what would happen if one day it like opened its eyes both like observing something that's around you in this really vivid way and then also imagining other possibilities that might be a fantasy or science fiction or some other way in which you're sort of puncturing a little hole in reality yes. and i think that, that can also be useful for your process Carmen, you're so awesome. That was so good. Thank you so much. I think it's so awesome that you teach too. I feel especially guests, whether it's a teaching background or currently teaching, there's an extra level of them resonating with the guests. So I know the community is going to freaking love your episode even more. So Carmen, thank you so much again for making time for us. Oh good. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our episode with Carmen Maria Machado. Carmen, it was so nice having you on the show and I loved our conversation. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to Carmen on Twitter at Carmen M. Machado and head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Carmen dash Maria dash Machado. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. And we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much again in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. 
Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.